Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. Thanks for joining us again on Saturday. We're going through problem passages of the Bible here with Sam Storms, J.J. Side, Michael Patton, and I'm Tim Kimberly. And today we are looking at 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to talk about sin. So if you know any, anybody that sins, if you've ever sinned in your life, this is, this is the topic. This is for us to talk about. And 1 John chapter 3 Verse six. By the way, let we, me throw it out. You also, if you know anybody who's never sinned, this would be really important because it we would be. We would need right. them as an object lesson. That, that's right. That's right. So we're really glad that JJ's here yes, with right. us today. Thanks, JJ, <laughs> for joining us. We know Michael's out, so Michael is not in this category. Hey, right, I brother? almost called in sick because of this one. Because you know? you're too busy sinning at home. It was yeah. just the, this one disturbs me too much. I'm all first right. in line for the rapture. That's all I know. All right, let me throw out two verses, and then we're going to dive into the two verses. Okay, First John three verse 6 no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him verse 9 and then I'm gonna read verse 10 too because it's just equally as disturbing verse 9 uh, no disturbing in a positive way that it should make us tremble no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he who has been born of God. Now, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, All right. So I, you know, got... I think you're, you're reading from a translation that includes the verb that least takes some of the sting away, right? Yeah, it does. So I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, you have a net Bible. Would you like to Well, the net Bible doesn't have that much difference, but uh, in so, some of the translations that don't have more of an interpretation involved in this word sin, I think they put the word practice or keeps on sinning. So that whenever you're, whenever you're, some people read this and some people are reading this at home along with us and it says everyone who sins yeah. practices lawlessness or no one who is born of God sins rather than putting the practices sins or sins continually afterwards. So in so other words, that's an interpretive word inserted by the translators and we have to decide whether or not it's, it, it's uh, legitimately Yeah, but that's the yeah. sting, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the sting is that you read this for the first time. It says, no one who is born of God sins. And that's you're right. like, oh man, I am up the creek. That's right. Well, and it's not to make you distrust. Can your, I say up your, the creek? Oh, totally. Okay. Yeah. It, it's not to make you distrust your Bible that you have in your hands either. What we have to realize is that this was originally written in Greek. And so if you're reading an English version, King James, whatever it may be, you're reading a translation. And there is no perfect 
from one to another. You, you just not like, hey, here's the Greek word, here's a perfect English word. There is always a little bit of interpretation that goes in to the way that, that we write it. And anyone who's not monolingual already understands that. And anytime yeah. they try to translate one modern language into another. Mo- monolingual? That's, Mono- yeah, Mono- or American as we call it. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're, in, we're in a series of difficult passages. So That's this right. is difficult because it says, everyone who has been fathered by God does not sin All right, because now, God's yeah. seed Let me just throw a real monkey wrench into the works. Oh, wait, and he is not able to sin. Gotta, All right. Gotta. No, I'm glad you said that because I'm looking two chapters earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, John says in verse no, what it is? schizophrenic. And yeah, then again in verse 10, 1 John 1, 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And then God turns right around and tells us in chapter 3, verse 6 and 9, no one who's born of God commits sin. So is he, did John lose his marbles halfway through? Is this a, is this a problem for the inerrancy of Scripture? This, you know, even, this even overwhelms scholars. You know, they'll say yeah. things like, uh, one scholar said, uh, no biblical author uh, contradicts himself so sharply in such a short space. <laughs> <laughs> well, it appears that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know what? You know what? Just as a side note, I know that this isn't what about it. What this is about? It really does help me to say, man, our, the history of the Bible has a lot of integrity mm. because a lot of religions <laughs> you get to these places and they smooth it over, you know, and and try to make it to where there's not these types of problems. But that we're dealing with this, and nobody, none of our our uh, scribes in the past have. They've had the same problems, but they've kept it intact. Yeah, because a lot of people would, Michael, that's a great point. A lot of people would look at this and say, oh, my gosh, can I not trust my Bible? Uh, maybe I'm getting shaky about if I can or not because people are saying these things. But what you are what you just said is it should make you trust your Bible more because the people who translate this when it was originally written, there's such a confidence in God directing this that all of the warts and everything are in there for us to navigate. So this, is, this feels like a wart because... Because in the same book, John is writing contrary things. And then we have things like John 3.16, God so loved the world that, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, not whoever believes in him and never sins again, but whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And, and you, know so, why, you, you know why you else this is this. So, so hard is because even whenever you qualify it with the words that sometimes the translators qualify, it doesn't help me out that much. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Just made a if little you easy. don't practice it, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I mean, how do you hey. qualify that? Because I'd like to say practice in continually. And then I'd say, well, no, I still don't work out because, you know, what is it that John is saying? Well, l- let's address the elephant in the room. Are we just avoiding, I'm just asking this rhetorical question, to which I expect an answer. Are we just <laughs> avoiding the fact that John is telling us that some Christians can become sinless? Uh, or is that so experientially absurd and so much a part of human arrogance that anybody would ever claim it. By the way, arrogance is a sin, so they just they just blew their chance. Uh, are, are we ruling out from the start that John could be telling us that sinless perfection is attainable in this life? Well, if he's saying that here, doesn't that mean that he's contradicting himself in chapter one, the verses you read, and well, then now we now we just lost inerrancy? Right? But this is yeah. the passage yeah. that a lot of people who believe in sinless perfection would use. Yeah, that's right. And there are large groups out there that do believe that we should at least. 
aspire towards sinless perfection within view that we could attain it. Many people do. Well, and once again, I mean, this kind of goes off of what we talked about last week is that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater here too and say, um, you know, I, I believe that you should sin, so go and sin a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we do believe in sanctification. All Christians should believe that the Holy Spirit is inside of us, making us all look more like Jesus, who is the sinless one. And so we should be encouraging people to sin less and that the work of the Holy Spirit inside of them is making them sin less because they're looking more like Jesus. Uh, but many times, the more you grow, the more you realize the deeper sin in your life, well, though, too. That's so. right. And John Owen, the Puritan, he said this very clearly. He said, okay, just because you realize from Scripture that, that this tree that you're chopping at with an axe is going to keep growing back, why on earth would you swing softer? Mm-hmm. You know, So the reality of sin's uh, persistent presence, this side of heaven, uh, should never make the Christian therefore swing that. Well, it's just going to grow back. He's like, swing harder, not softer. Let me go give you guys a view and see what you think of it. Okay, uh, man, we this can't is wait a, to tear This isn't you necessarily my it. view, but some people would say, well, with John, since he talks about belief so much, you know, we talk about the gospel of John, and it's all about belief. What he's talking about here, whenever you sin, is by not believing. Goes on sinning, goes on unbelieving. Uh, something maybe akin to the book of Hebrews and the the belief, persistent belief that uh, people would have. What so, do you guys think? So of that? you're saying that it is a specific or particular sin that he has in mind, and not just um, pride or lust yeah. or I thought I was sinless and then I walked out and I envied somebody who's got a new car that I'd love to have. That's right. Actually, um, you got man, you jumped the gun. I was going to say, now I'm going to have to reveal my view. I actually, (laughs) it's very similar to the view I actually embrace. Let me respond to it by by pointing out something that uh, I hope our listeners are aware of. First John is built around a series of tests by which genuine faith is seen and known, and false faith is exposed. And the two primary tests are: Do you love the brethren? And do you believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh? If you hate the brothers and you deny that Jesus is God come in the flesh, you're of the Antichrist, he says in 1 John 4. Uh, You do not have the Father. And so one view that I find very appealing is that when he says that he who has been born of God does not sin, He's specifically talking about those sins that he addresses at great length elsewhere in the epistle. In other words, he's saying the one who is born of God does not hate the brothers and does not deny that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's honing in, as it were, on two particular transgressions that are the hallmark, on the one hand, of exposing somebody as a false professor and the opposite, identifying somebody as truly having been born of God. So that is a, that's actually uh, a, an increasingly more popular view among commentators. Well, yeah. let me piggyback on that, Sam, because this is, this is where my view comes in, and it's basically identical. If you look at verse 4, um, John says, everyone who makes a practice, chapter 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then he says, sin is lawlessness. Well, this is a pretty interesting word. First of all, it's the only time it's used in first, second, or third John, lawlessness. It's used a couple hundred times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's only used about 15 times in the New Testament. But what's interesting about it is that it's never used in the context of somebody who's part of the covenant people of God who's breaking God's law. It's used to describe rebellion, to describe what John says right here in in 1 John 2.15. Anyone who loves the world 
The love of the Father is not in him. So he's talking about somebody who's part of an organized system of human opposition to God and him being boss, right? Then, this then is the person just, saying, don't tell me what to do. I am going to be master of my fate. Captain then you're saying ship. it's not just loving the world in the sense of I, I like what God has created. I like to laugh. I like entertainment or something like that. We're not that. talking about ice cream ponies or sunsets. We're talking about an organized system of opposition to God being sovereign. Uh, which is how the word world is used in First John. So it's interesting that here, right before he dives into verse 6, this incredibly difficult verse that seems to contradict chapter 1, he just said, sin is lawlessness. So I think he's talking about people who have rebelled against God, not Christians whose consciences are grieved mm. when they fail to be obedient to his standard of holiness. It's people who couldn't care less when they break God's law. They don't uh, accept God as the lawmaker or lawgiver. Huh. Well, in uh, chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So speaking of that same group, like these are outsiders. These are people who are not a part and of the And this is what Sam was trying community. to give us background earlier. The whole background of the letter is formed around 219, that there's a group of people that are tearing this community of faith apart that are saying we can get to God without obeying Jesus. So, and so, John is saying you only get to God through obeying Jesus. Hold on a second. Submitting. I don't like what I'm – so are you actually trying to tell me that I need to read Scripture in context? I oh, mean, I can't never just, suggest something so bold. So I can't just never. go to, I can't just fly into chapter three and just hit the ground running. No. Hey, let me let me just throw out a couple of other options and see what you all think if they have if they can if they work. Uh, some people say, look if you would again at verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning or sins. And so some people say, oh, he's talking here about those who abide in Christ versus those who don't. If you don't abide in Christ, you can sin. And that's what 1 John 1 is talking about. So 1 John 3 is talking about the mature Christian who's consistently abiding in Jesus. Now, the problem I have with that is uh, down in verse 9, the cause for the not sinning isn't that you're abiding, but that you've been born again. So he seems to include all believers there, not dividing them up into two groups. Here's another argument, a position I heard once. Some people say, well, it's your sin nature that can sin. That's 1 John 1. But you as a born-again believer can't. That's 1 John 3. But how do you divide our nature from ourselves? Mm -hmm. I mean, are we not, in essence, identical with our nature? Mm -hmm. And then I heard somebody say, here's an interesting view, that, that John has his mind fixed on the new heavens and the new earth and the consummation of God's purposes and our glorification. And so he's speaking in exaggerated hyperbolic terms in a kind of an idealistic expectation of what will be true in the new heavens and the new earth. Christians can't ultimately say. Yeah. yeah right. right. Um, th those, are, those are some options. And then, of course, the one that we haven't talked about yet um, that that many scoff at, I won't look at anybody and whistle here at the table, <laughs> um, is reflected in the translation of the e English Standard Version, the ESV. Look again at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, in the original text, it just says no one who abides in him sins, but the uh, grammarians have pointed out that this is in the present tense in Greek, and the present tense here indicates a pervasive, ongoing, habitual practice as over against uh, a singular act of transgression. Then again, verse 9, no one who born of God makes a practice of sinning. Same thing again in verse 10, whoever does not 
practice righteousness is not of God. Now, the interesting thing about this, in uh, verse 9 and 10, uh, there's an additional word here. It literally says, he who does sin. In other words, th- th- there's an additional verb here. And so the idea, it's not just committing a sin. It's, let me give you an example. If I pull my iPhone out, I've got two options uh, when I click on camera. I can take a snapshot of Michael sitting across the table from me right now, but I've also got the option of playing a video, and I could take a video of what he's going to be doing over the next 15 minutes, or at least until my battery runs out. And some argue that's the, the difference that John has in view. He's not talking about taking a snapshot of Tim's life and catching him committing a single transaction uh, or transgression in a, in a point in time but rather he's taking a video portrait of Tim over the whole course of his life. And the point is, Tim cannot go on in unrepentant practice of sin over the course of his life and still claim to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. As over against, oh, well, we wouldn't deny that he can commit and, a sin and here or there. And would qualified as unrepentant because of what he says in chapter 1, that if we do sin, we have an advocate, and uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is this... Is this a qualification there? Because what, what I'm thinking of is, okay, a habit. How long is a habit? That's a good question. And, and how, how, when do we qualify it according to what John says goes on sinning? Is it, is it I go on sinning today or a week or is it a six-year period? But when is the cutoff point? Because I think that everybody would want to know that, including myself, is, man, okay, I've got this habitual sin maybe of anger or I've got this habitual sin of pride or just so many things that people have yet to deal with, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, habits that they have in their life, vices that they have in their life. Uh, uh, Maybe somebody feels bad because they've played golf every single Sunday and, you know, they don't think they should. And so, but it's something that's persistent in their life. Well, I had a lady come up this last week after church and asked the same question uh, about somebody she knows who struggles with same-sex attraction and wanted to know if that person can be a Christian. I said, well, the issue here isn't whether we sin. The issue is what we do when we sin. Is this person defiant, proud, uh, unrepentant? Lawless. uh, Lawless. Yeah. Or when they do yield to a sin, are they broken? Are they convicted in their heart? Does the Spirit make them aware of this? And do they want to fight by the power of God's grace against it? So... The, the issue, are we going to sin? Yes. The question is, how do we respond when we do? And that's where Jesus gives us the two people praying and the one saying, God, thank you that I'm not you know, the publican and the sinner. Thank you. I'm not like them. And then the, the sinner's like, Lord, please have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, and you see the difference there of, of someone who's truly repentant, you know, who's showing that the role of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, that the Holy Spirit is present in the life of a believer. When we systematize what the Bible says about sin, and we've mentioned this in previous broadcasts, you can sign sum it up in a couple sentences. You know, before he rescued us and moved us from spiritual death to spiritual life, we were under the power of sin. We didn't have a choice but to sin. And the interesting thing is most of us didn't really realize that dynamic because we loved it. So we weren't trying to stop uh, hard enough to realize that we didn't have the option to stop. Mm -hmm. So then we became a Christian. And in many ways, it feels like our experience didn't really change. But now we're fighting against it and we're Mm -hmm. moving the ball up the field an inch at a time but we're still deeply bothered by the presence of sin. So we're not always aware that we have actually moved from it having such power over us that we didn't have the option but to sin all the time. Now we're seeing some slight progress, but we're still not at that point where we'll be someday where we'll be freed from the presence of sin. Yeah. 
and we should point out, because we probably got some rather sophisticated listeners, that, um, well, good friend of ours here at this table and of Credo House is Dan Wallace, maybe the premier grammarian uh, among New Testament scholars in, in the evangelical world. And Dan says you can't press the present tense in Greek to draw out that kind of meaning, that it's, it may on occasion have that force, but you can't consistently extract from the present tense in Greek the idea of habitual, ongoing practice. So although that sounds like a really appealing interpretation that gets us all off the hook in one sense, it may not be um, uh, the best way of gets reading the passage. three guys off the hook, by the way. So, so, the, so the convincing arguments that have been given, you're saying that they might not be convincing arguments and we might be back to square one where we're really not sure what this passage is saying? Pretty much so. That's why I'd come back to what Michael said earlier. I personally think, and this opens up a whole new can well, of worms. Before you personally think something. <laughs> I've already personally thought it. I need a, I'm just I getting ready to I personally I need to publicly think something. Um, now, and let, me, let me throw out this other option just to see what you all think, because I, I have talked to a, um, a Johannine scholar who, that would be a scholar who just studies John mainly. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to him about this passage, and he said, you must understand this about John before you ever start to study John, is that he speaks in mysterious language often, uh, the, the word, log, using the word logos. And he also talks about the, the black and white that John sees things in, where, you know, it's, it's light or darkness, it's sin or no sin. And he says that that's not necessarily wrong, but some people do speak in that way, and they don't expect to be pushed to the wall in the way they speak whenever, whenever they are speaking this way. And so when we're looking at John and we're trying to take him apart, we're, we're using the Bible is inerrant. We believe the word, so every single word has the ultimate meaning, and every single phrase has the ultimate meaning that it possibly could have without realizing that some people do speak in these terms. I mean, I know whenever I preach sometimes, I will preach differently from the pulpit than I might in a smaller setting where I will talk about some more maybe— um, uh, vacillating ideas or more gray areas. Yeah. But whenever I preach, you do preach in a little bit more black and white than it's you would great, otherwise. It's a great point. You know, it's not that he forgot that he wrote chapter one when he got to chapter yeah. three. Mm-hmm. You know, he was making a black and white statement in chapter one. Look, for those of you mealy-mouthed Christians who say you don't have sin, let me cut you straight. If you say that, you're a liar. You know, then he gets to chapter three and he says, look at you mealy-mouthed people that say you're deeply spiritual, but you don't submit to Jesus's authority. If you say that, you're not saved. You know, so in, in each case, he's trying to bring clarity to something that someone else is trying to muddy up. And let me try to give one more illustration about this and continual and habitual sin and how long does it last. I look at I look at uh, the book of Acts and I look at Peter and from uh, Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 10, most people would say there's anywhere from 8 to 10 years. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 was born again. He had the Spirit of God within him. But it wasn't until Acts chapter 10 that he is rooted out of his life, this habitual sin, this pattern to where he would not eat with Gentiles and believed it was sinful to do so mm-hmm. and had to be coerced out of this. Mm-hmm. But we would look at this and we'd say, man, that is the sin of prejudice. That is the sin of racism. That is the sin of pride that l- lived with him for 10 years. So how would John respond to Peter? And I think in order to make a truly systematic theology where we are saying John was just as inspired as Peter and he knew the same truth, but they can speak in different ways 
about the same issue. You know, we're so unplugged. I just realized five minutes ago, I totally botched what I was saying. You know, I kept talking about the power of sin and the presence. It's uh, the progression is where we're freed from sin's penalty. Now we're increasingly being freed from its power. Someday we'll be freed from its presence. I had my identical twin boys had me up all night. So Uh, I'm doubly unplugged. Nice, nice excuse, excuse, but we're not going to accept it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Here's, I'd like to kind of have us land the plane on this idea of, I am a Christian. I love Jesus. I do know that there's sin in my life that I want to uh, have have the Holy Spirit change in me over time. Um, when I read First John three as a Christian, um, is there anything in here that applies to my life that can direct me to live my day today? Definitely. I mean, it, <laughs> I think the, in no sense would we ever say as a Christian that that we're trying to get off the hook from sin and trying to justify sinful patterns. And that's all we're trying. We know sin is bad. And I think it goes back to what Sam says. And I think I can draw systematic understanding of the scriptures. And my understanding of faith is that is that whenever we do sin and the Holy Spirit is dealing with us, there is always this, this struggle, this wrestling match we're having with sin. There isn't a continual justification, a continual rebellion against either the idea of sin or these particular sins that we know are present in our life. And I think John is talking to his audience about sin that they know that is in their life. And it's something that either you are you don't really care about and you're not a Christian, or you're really wrestling with an overcoming and you are a believer. First John 3 is a blessing because it brings clarity if you're asking the right question. For the believer who's troubled in their conscience, they need to read chapter 1 and, and be reminded, hey, welcome to the club, man. We're all fighting sin here. The guy who sat in my office years ago and kept short-circuiting our conversation by saying over and over, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but had no fruit in his life, I was able to cut through it with the rhetoric of First John 3, and I said to him, hey, man, let, let's stop saying I'm a Christian. Who's the boss of your life? Who calls the shots? Who gets to make the final call when you and God disagree? And then he got real quiet and he said, oh, me. Mm. So that, that's what John's doing here in chapter 3. He's cutting through all the rhetoric to, to help people realize if you're living in a lawless way, you're not a believer. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha, In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.